Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. It is August 16th, 2021, and there are a lot of mysteries out there. Um, the, the news this morning is all about mysteries. Uh, uh, original Angels creators uh, uh, have announced a new murder mystery series. These series seem to be extremely popular, attracting nubile young people, both as actors and, I guess, as audience. Um, Stephen King has a new mystery out that got reviewed in the Wall Street Journal. Um, Raw Shack, which I know a lot of my friends like, has solved apparently its biggest mystery. Um, even Dolly Parton, who one wouldn't necessarily associate with mysteries, has written a mystery novel with James Patterson, uh, the, the White Lotus, which is a kind of satire of the of the one or two percent in America. Uh, it's um, it's biggest mystery, and we don't necessarily associate that show with mystery, was about who didn't die rather than did die. Um, and there's even a, a headline in the Daily Beast about Edgar Allan Poe's final macabre mystery, his own death. So there's a real mystery about mysteries. Why are we so infatuated, seduced by mysteries? There's a new book out on mysteries, appropriately enough, by my old friend Jonah Lehrer. Many of you will know his work, a, a controversial neuroscientist, a, a popularizer of science. Um, the book is called Mystery, a Seduction, a Strategy, a Solution. Jonah is talking to me from his home in Los Angeles, California, just down the road from me in San Francisco. Uh, Jonah, the mystery about mysteries. Um, what's so interesting about mysteries? Why are we so seduced by them? Uh, I mean, for me, this was a chance to really delve into one of the nobler features of the human mind, which is why we're drawn to the unknown. You know, there aren't too many creatures who are drawn to the unknown and the unknowable. And I love the idea that everything from Sherlock Holmes to Mark Rothko to a difficult poem, that these are all forms of content that draw us in. And in particular, when you look at the canon, when you look at art that lasts, great art from Hamlet on down, it has to do with content that is unsolvable, that is an infinite game that, that keeps serving up new questions over time. And so I wanted to understand why that was so interesting to us. Uh, I think it's especially important in the 21st century when we're surrounded by social media platforms that do the opposite, that try to reinforce our beliefs, that trade in confirmation bias. So I wanted to remind us that mysteries and complexity and doubt can also be really fun. Uh, you mentioned the infinite nature of mystery. One of the people you quote in your book is J.J. Uh, Abrams. Everyone knows his work, very successful um, producer of television and, 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 and film. He has the concept of the mystery box uh, Abrams is well known as one of the um, the creators of Lost, which I have to admit I found really annoying. I watched it. I watched I don't know fifty shows with my daughter, 
Mm-hmm. And after a while, the mystery becomes unmysterious. At a certain point, mysteries have to end, don't they, to be interesting? Um, I'm not sure we need closure for them to be interesting. I do think we need some faith that they are solvable. So I think there is a fine line one has to play. And I think post season two of Lost, they may have lost the thread. Um, I talk about it in the book in terms of mystery boxes. And that's where I bring in J.J. Abrams, where... On the one hand, you don't just want to confuse people. Pure noise is completely tedious. But at the same time, you don't want to make it too predictable. So there is a very fine line, a a clear balance one wants to strike between, on the one hand, surprising people, giving us the uncertain, you know, giving us ambiguous clues, and yet at the same time, just being completely befuddling. And I think season four of Lost, they may have tipped over into completely befuddling. And that's a, a polite way of saying it's a complete waste of time. Uh, you mentioned Sherlock Holmes. You begin the book with perhaps the the mother, the queen of the mystery, Agatha Christie, and the mystery of her own uh, invented death. Uh, what was so remarkable about Christie in her work? Uh, you argue that Poe was the original creator of the mystery, but uh, Christie, more than anyone else, seems to have popularized it what did she get that other people didn't get and why is the the story of her own imagined death so important in understanding her art i think it's important i mean first of all poe was the inventor of the modern detective form i mean certainly bits and pieces of the structure had been around but he was the first one to put it all together you have the omniscient deductive detective who can solve the impossible crime you know, in act two, there's a false lead, it's solved in act three. So that was very much a Poe invention. But I do think you can see both Conan Doyle and Christie really took it to its, you know, they they fleshed out the form and perfected it. And I think with Christie, what drew me to her own personal story and this disappearance that really made her famous was that I think she understood better than anyone, perhaps even better than Poe, just how appealing mysteries were. And, and, and she really finessed the form so it fit the grooves of the human mind incredibly well. She understood what people wanted from a story. She understood exactly how complex to make it. Uh, she understood how much people wanted a surprise at the end. Um, and I think her best stories are truly surprising. You really can't see them coming. Um, and I, you know, when you look at the arc of her career, it really was this disappearance and and it remains controversial. It remains a mystery exactly what happened to her. But I think it's not controversial that it made her famous, that it took this, this mildly successful female author and really put her on the front page of every newspaper for two weeks. I have to say that I love Poirot, um, just as I hated Lost. Um, Poirot, if I, if I was reinvented and I, and I could grow a mustache, I would become uh, Hercule Poirot. Poirot. What is it about Poirot that makes him so popular, Jonah, do you think, as this solver of mystery, as this gentleman genius? I mean, I think it is this notion, this this faith we want to have that order can be restored. W.H. Auden has a great essay on the detective novel, uh, kind of the longstanding appeal of, and he actually talks about how, how different it was from the ancient Greek dramas, where you know how it's going to end. Um, and part of the appeal is you don't know how it's going to end. And yet at the same time, there's comfort in the gentleman genius who is going to solve it. Um, you know, I, I think it, it speaks to our, 
faith and rationality. It speaks to our faith that the dots can be connected um, and, you know, and that order can be restored in the last act. So I think it does, you know, it's a certain kind of mystery. I talk about other mysteries in the book, like Hamlet, which obviously that's full of mysteries we'll never solve. And that's what makes that text infinitely appealing. Yet at the same time, there is there is a deep appeal in Agatha Christie, a deep appeal in Law and Order um, and all the spinoffs where you have these contained mysteries where we know in 42 minutes or 400 pages that we will get the answer, that order will be restored and the bad guys will be found. One person I didn't expect to bump into in a Jonah Lehrer book, um, although one never knows who's going to pop up, is Theodore Adorno, the father of Frankfurt School dialectic, uh, sort of postmodern dialectic called materialism, the great critic of popular and populist culture. Um, but you quote Adorno in the book. Um, Adorno says um, that art is magic. And I'm curious, magic, the M word pops up from time to time in your book. Uh, what's the relationship between mystery and magic? And is there a, an element of nostalgia? Perhaps you'd find the same in, in, in Adorno for a, a pre-rational, pre-enlightenment uh, ironically enough, Jonah, given your neuroscience background, a pre-scientific culture? I think magic speaks to all sorts of deep-seated things in the mind. Um, and I think Ordorno spoke specifically about the appeal of magic in relationship to art, how with magic we go in and we want to be tricked. And in you know, the same way you walk into a movie theater and you you know, or back in the days when we went to movie theaters, and you want the suspension of disbelief. You want to be tricked by the Marvel superheroes on the gigantic screen. Um, and, and and that is a very interesting, I think, phenomenon. Um, I also talk about it in terms of spoilers and why spoilers really don't spoil anything, at least when it's good art, because the brain is so eager to be duped. The brain is so eager to be tricked and to lose itself in this narrative. And why is that? Is, that, um, is there a... a a Darwinian explanation? Is there a psychological one, a cultural one? I don't know. It's a great question. Um, I mean, there are certainly speculations and theories out there. I'd like to believe at best it's just an accident that we are storytelling animals, we're social animals, and perhaps our desire to lose ourselves in these rich narratives is just, as Stephen Jay Gould may have put it, a spandrel. It's an accident. Um, I, I'm not sure beyond some general speculation around stories bring us together and stories are important for social cohesion, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure we'll ever know. So we, so we might as well just enjoy it. Um, and I think to return to your question about magic, I think the appeal of magic is deeply tangled up with mystery. Um, I, th I think there is deep pleasure in watching someone do the inexplicable. We crave, uh, uh, you've got this one. I don't think, I think it's your, your phrase or maybe you're quoting someone else. Uh, we crave the gr the gasp. Is that your phrase or someone else's? Uh, I'm I'm I think paraphrasing a magician who talks about you know the joy of being a magician is that nothing wrong with borrowing other people's words, Jonah, is it? Just got to do it properly, as I've learned. Um, <laughs> you know, he 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 talks about you crave the collective inhalation, which is the, you know the sign of awe and the sign of wonder and astonishment. Um, and you know, awe in particular, which I think can be can be induced by the best magicians. Um, awe is something; it's a profound human emotion, which I'm not sure any other animal can experience. Nobody knows why the hell we can experience it. 
Um, and I think it can be induced by whether it's a great magic trick or a great Shakespeare play or a beautiful poem or a Mark Rothko chapel painting. Um, right. you, you have a lot about paintings. Um, you have a section on connecting Hockney, uh, Vermeer, um, and, uh, and Caravaggio. You claim they're all artists of mystery in one way or the other. What connects those three seemingly unconnected artists? Well, I think they're kind of magicians. I think one of the ways artists create mystery in their work is the how the hell did they do it aspect. So you see a magician do a trick and it's the mystery is how did that happen? And I think in the same way, painters have always tried to create, especially verisimilitude, the invention of perspective. And then as Hockney has hypothesized and speculated, a lot of these great old masters use various primitive cameras to create pictures that were so realistic, the audience said, how is that possible? How did the human hand possibly do that? And this is, of course, in the age before cameras, um, for real cameras. Um, and I think that that in itself is an alluring mystery and something that's always been used to hook the audience. So yeah, and uh, uh, I, it made sense to me in terms of what my favorite painting is uh, Vermeer's uh, Woman in Blue reading, reading a letter. Um, it's so mysterious, I won't even put it up on the screen, but it is the masterpiece of masterpieces because, as you suggest, it, it raises questions. It doesn't really answer anything, does it? No. No, no, in the same way, you know, and I don't think this is just about realism. I think one can look at a Rothko or a Pollock or any work of abstract expression expressionism that works for you. And the mystery there is not verisimilitude. The mystery there is, why does this make me feel? Why does this field of color, these drips of paint, why is this triggering an emotion in me if in fact it does trigger an emotion for you? So I think one of the ways art intrigues us is the mechanics question, is how does this happen? Why is it making me feel this way? And how the hell did they do it? So it's, you, so it's in part the mystery of craft. Do you think of yourself as an artist? Because you know, when I picked up this book, given that you've been in the headlines for other reasons over the last few years, um, I was expecting something perhaps a little bit more explicit in terms of your own history. But reading between the lines, I sensed, um, if not an anger, certainly uh in a sense this is a, a polemic about magic isn't it oh I, I i never thought of myself as a polemicist i hope uh didn't think well i didn't mean that as an insult i think polemicists uh, uh, being a polemicist isn't necessarily a bad thing for me the book did feel urgent in the sense that i think we live in an age which is neglected mystery i think we live in an age where we pretend to quote you, the internet is the answer and it's not the answer. Um, and so I wanted to find a way to remind ourselves, to remind myself that there are other ways to engage people that don't involve a newsfeed confirming what they already believe, that there are other ways to engage our intrinsic curiosity. Um, and, you know, and so if the book has an urgency, I think it is rooted in that, where we do live in this time where there is a mystery. If there's a question, we just ask Google and Google never says, I don't know. Google never acknowledges the mystery. Google doesn't know what it doesn't know. And so I did feel like there, we needed to be reminded that there are other ways to enjoy content. There are other reasons great art sticks around. And I think the internet could do worse than 
try to come up with other models of engagement that don't just involve this very, very superficial form of curiosity. Do you think there's a mystery about yourself? Uh, myself in particular, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm a stranger to myself. Um, you know, I think we're all strangers to ourselves. I think human nature is incredibly mysterious. Well, if for somebody who, um, somebody, you know, I, I wouldn't say we're, we're friends or close, but I'm maybe a little too sympathetic to what, what's happened to you. But for someone from a distance, they would perhaps be mystified by someone like yourself, who's clearly enormously talented, who essentially blew themselves up, not once, but twice, seemingly unnecessarily. To me, that's a mystery. I mean, it's all very well to point fingers and say, oh, you stole words, blah, blah, blah. We've been through that. And that's a boring conversation now. But to me, it, it raises an interesting mystery about, about you and perhaps magic and truth. Did that occur to you writing this book? I mean, the, the personal level at which I connected with this book was um, wanting to looking back at my previous work, wanting to do a better job of appreciating the mystery and the uncertainty and the ambiguity, not just of art, but of science. Um, I think we, it's too easy, especially as a pop science writer, to see the latest finding as a settled takeaway. Um, and I wanted to remind myself to find joy in the mystery of it, in the complexity of it, uh, to find ways to celebrate that. And then there's the angle of, I think, when one enjoys mystery, there's the intellectual humility that comes along with it. Um, and intellectual humility is, I think, the starting point of all critical thinking. Um, the ability to doubt not just what's in front of you, but to doubt yourself and your own beliefs. And I think in the past, I certainly didn't do a good enough job of that. And so I wrote this book in part, you know, like most of my books, as a self-help manual to try to make myself better at appreciating mystery. Um, in terms of my own mistakes, um, I mean, they were devastating failures. I, I, I screwed up several Bob Dylan quotes. Um, Who is an appropriate, I mean, he would have screwed up his own quotes, right? So I, I don't I mean, you know, I mean, looking, looking back on it, what's unfathomable to me is that I could have used the right quotes to the same effect, right? I was making a point about Bob Dylan's creative process and the right quotes would have been good enough. I was just rushing and too arrogant, put the wrong quotes in a harried book proposal and never went back to fix them. And, uh, and then it was too late. And it was, I mean, I, I you know, to quote my mother uh, and pardon my French, I thought my shit didn't stink. Um, and, uh, and it did, you know, it's, that was wrong. Um, and I, I, I thought I was, too, I was too arrogant for a fact check, didn't have the time for a fact check, and so got some big facts wrong, starting with those Bob Dylan quotes. I was looking at some of the reviews, both of your previous book that was controversial and even this book, and I think one of the problems with our culture is that we haven't learned how to forgive. It's very ironic in America, supposed to be a, a Christian culture, but it's particularly unforgiving. Do you think there's a connection between losing this sense of awe of magic and of forgiving? Um, I mean, that's, that's very interesting. Um, I hadn't really thought about, I, th I think there's a connection between recognizing the mystery of human beings and we are these unknowable creatures. And I've got a chapter in the mystery book on opaque characters um, 
and I think you look at great works of art, like Shakespeare was perhaps the best at this, uh, what, what makes characters come alive, and it doesn't matter if it's Hamlet or Tony Soprano, is the sense in which the art reminds us of our own mystery, that people are not predictable robots. We are contextual creatures. We are mercurial creatures. And I think there's, there's a connection between being able to acknowledge the mystery of human beings and being able to forgive them. Um, you know, I, I, I can't judge anyone's forgiveness timeline. I know how hard it's been to forgive myself for my mistakes. Um, and that's been a long winding road full of therapy and all the rest. So, so it's a process and I, it's a different process for everyone. Um, but, but I do, you know, I think it's a smart point being able to acknowledge the mystery of other people and at the same time, forgive them. I think those things are related. Well, you mentioned a long winding road. I can't miss the opportunity to, to bring in the, the authors of a, the long winding road, uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, who also feature in your book. You're clearly a big fan of the Beatles. What's so mysterious about the White Album in particular, or why do you spend some time in the book writing about them? I mean, I was fascinated by the Paul is Dead conspiracy, which I think is easy to look back on and assume was some invented controversy of the late 1960s, but it actually was a giant cultural event. Um, and, and to me, it speaks to the proper way to interrogate a cultural mystery, to interrogate a mysterious text, an ambiguous text. I think one way is to use a strategy of the Paul is Dead speculators, which is to see these dots and connect them and assume they're all codes in a, you know, codes in an interlocking pattern that you're going to somehow decrypt the White Album um, as if it's, you know, some breakable code. When in fact, I think the proper way to approach great art, and I would put the White Album up there, um, and Abbey Road and all the rest, is to treat it as a mystery that may never be solved. And it's going to keep serving up new answers. It's going to keep reading you and keep giving you new questions. Um, and so, you know, so I use Paul as dead as, as an example of the wrong way to interrogate an ambiguous text. And I think the Beatles, or the late Beatles, I should say, were masters of kind of the, the right way to craft an ambiguous line. Uh, it gets back to what we're talking about lost post season two, which is that fine line between confusing and making something complex and intriguing. And I think Lennon and McCartney, they really knew how to walk that line. They, they knew how to craft a line that was just skewed enough where it made us sit up. It made our hair stand on end. It woke us up, made us pay attention. And yet at the same time, it teased us with the possibility of meaning that, that, that those cornflakes in Come Together could actually mean something. So the subtitle of the book, Mystery, A Seduction, A Strategy, A Solution, one might add a disaster given our increasingly conspiratorial culture, the disappearance of truth. Everything now is a mystery from uh, who, who, who flew the planes into Naya, into the towers, or whether the planes really did fly into the towers, uh, to somebody like Donald Trump who sees the entire world as one big conspiracy. At what point does our faith in magic and our love of mystery become itself a problem in our culture when it comes to politics in particular? I think it becomes a problem when we can't accept mystery, when we can't accept complexity. I think the problem, we're not suffering from a surplus of doubt right now. We're suffering from a surplus of fake answers. 
Um, and, you know, to me, I think that gets back to what we were talking about briefly in terms of the way the engagement model of the internet, whether it's Facebook or YouTube or TikTok, it's to serve up more of what you already want. And yeah. so if you believe in X, it'll give you X plus one. Um, and I think great art and and proper mysteries properly done do the opposite. They take what you know and they deconstruct it. They make it more complex. They give you reasons to doubt yourself. Um, they resist all your easy answers. You know, you may you may think you solve Hamlet or Harry Potter the first time you read it, and then you read it again and you realize it's more complex than you thought, that you don't understand Snape. You don't understand Hamlet. Um, and I think it's what great art does. And I think you know, we, we live in an age which has gone in the opposite direction, which, which really is all about trying to figure out what people believe and then giving them information that confirms their beliefs. And I think that, that in part is how we've ended up where we're at. We have a name for that, Joanna. It's called Catch-22. And uh, you write about the enigma. Not, this isn't your piece in The Times, but you write about the enigma of Joseph Heller, of course, the author of Catch-22, um, but for you, there's a mystery there of how somebody like Heller was only capable of writing one masterpiece and has written nothing else really that anyone else can remember. Uh, what is, what's so mysterious about the act of creation? Why can someone like Heller perhaps only create one great piece of work and then the rest of his creative life has, has, has become a footnote to Catch-22? I mean, it gets back to the mystery of human nature in particular. Uh, but this is this is the musings of a psychologist at UCSD named Nicholas Christenfeld, who he has studied the the unpredictable nature of human achievement, and it led him roundabout via Joseph Heller to what he calls the Usain Bolt problem, which is on the one hand there are fields like fiction, literary fiction, or music where they're full of one-hit wonders. Science is the same way. Um, where someone has one great breakthrough and then we assume we'll throw money at them, we'll give them big contracts because we assume it's repeatable. We assume they've cracked the process when they haven't. When there is a sheer contingency to human achievement, we like to neglect because it, I think there's, there's, you know, uh, there's something slightly terrifying about it. The idea that human success is mostly luck. Um, so, so we don't want to acknowledge it. And yet you can also look at fields where human achievement is very predictable, like track and field, like sprinting, where the best almost always win. And there you've got the opposite problem. There it's Usain Bolt made sprinting the 100 meter dash. He made it very boring for 10 years. Do you think the, cu the culture business does a bad job in creating overnight stars, perhaps like yourself, who then struggle to, to replicate the, their original one or two good pieces of work? I mean, I don't blame anyone but myself for my own problems. Um, I, I'm not sure I'm the one to speculate on kind of the 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 manufacturing processes of the culture industry. Um, but but uh, certainly, I, I don't think as a society we do a good enough job of of accepting and and really uh, acknowledging the contingency and luck of human success. And I think that's. That's tr it affects everything from the way we accept undergraduates to the kind of the, the ideology we give our kids that if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll do great. Um, when in fact, you know, you got to find sources of meaning that don't depend on external validation. Um, and I think it's, it's hard to say that because we assume success is some logical equation of, you know, 
grit plus talent plus working 55 hours a week for 12 and a half years and you'll do it. That's not the way the universe works. It's much more interesting than that. Jenny, you're one of the early casualties, if that's the right word, of cancel culture. Um, there have been many since you, some more shocking than others. Uh, are you concerned with the, this broad intolerance in culture? And it's, it's not relating to your own particular uh, quote-unquote crime, which, as you say, you've acknowledged. Um, but have we become too intolerant? Are you worried with cancel culture? Um, I mean, I'm not sure anyone needs my opinion on cancel culture. I can just speak. Well, I think you, you're, uh, uh, you, 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 you've experienced it. So you, you, you can see it from another angle. It's very easy to pile in on people. Sure. I mean, my own personal experience with cancel culture was, I think a little bit different than, I mean, it's an end of one for me. So I can just speak to my own personal experience. And, and to be totally frank, the public shame aspect of it wasn't, when I look back on it now, 10 years later, it's not the tweets I think about. It's not the tweets that keep me awake at 2 a.m. It is the internal chatter. I mean, it, it really comes back to no one can say something on Twitter that I haven't thought about myself in the last 30 seconds. Um, so it's, it's much more the private shame that sticks with me over time than the public shame. Um, now, I, I'm sure for a lot of people, it's very different, but that's just my own personal experience, which had less to do with cancel culture and kind of my Twitter timeline and more to just do with me trying to grapple with my own mistakes and how these mistakes came about and hurting people I love. Um, that's what sticks with me. Um, now, 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 again, this is just an end of one. This is just my story. I don't want to speak for anyone else who's been affected by mean people on the internet and cancel culture. But for me, it, you know, looking back on it now, it really is those those private moments, those private thoughts that that's what haunts me. Well, Jonah Lehrer is back with a, with a, a classic Lehrer book, Mystery, A Seduction, A Strategy, A Solution. I'm thrilled he's back. I, I think we should applaud the publisher as well for bringing the book out and, and, and forgiving and forgetting. I think, as, as we've said in this conversation, that's a good thing. It's important to move on, Jonah. So I'm thrilled you're back. It's great to talk to you again. You're looking well, energetic. I want more books, perhaps slightly more autobiographical in the future. In addition to your new book, Mystery, um, what else? I know you're in LA at the moment, looking after three young children, working a day job in a fintech. What else should people be reading in these strange kind of post, supposedly post-COVID times where we're not even sure if we're still in post-COVID? The the book I've been really enjoying uh, recently is The Free World. Um, oh, great, yeah. great vignettes of post-war American geniuses, culture creators from Pollock to Dulles. Um, it's it's just marvelous. Um, so I've really been enjoying that. Are we and in the, the twilight? Are, are we in the twilight of this world, uh, Jonah? The American world? Sorry. Are we in the twilight of the the post-war American world? I mean, the headlines don't look great today. Um, I, you know, part of the reason I find the free world so interesting is it is a story about the reinvention of America. Um, and I, I have to believe we'll find ways to keep reinventing ourselves as long as Facebook didn't somehow break the public sphere. You know, as long as we can maintain a public sphere and, and, and not 
not somehow uh, be splintered by our polarized algorithmic news feeds, I think we'll be okay. Well, I, you were intrigued with me presenting you as a polemicist. Perhaps your next book will be a polemic against Facebook. That would be very interesting. Uh, moving on, reinvention, uh, both uh, personal and professional, Jonah Lehrer. You've done it with this new book, Mystery, uh, A Seduction, A Strategy, A Solution. For anyone who likes popular science and very intriguing um, observations about art, creativity, genius. It's a must read. Congratulations. Great to see you. Keep well. Thank and we'll you have so you much. back on the show in the not too distant future. Thanks so much. Thank you.